It's time to explore developments in science and technology with Wiradjuri Woman and science and technology editor Ray Johnston. Ray Johnston, this is our very first one of the year, so Happy New Year and welcome to NITV Radio. Happy New Year, Happy 2023. Looking forward to chatting science and technology with you all throughout the year. And we're starting with a surprising one. A revelation or a discovery that ecosystems in Victoria and Tasmania may be most at risk from climate change. Yeah, that's right. This is a, a it's a new study. It's been led by researchers at the Australian National University, and it has shown that ecosystems in western parts of the southeast. So we're looking at Western Victoria, Western Tasmania they may be most at risk of feeling the impacts of climate change in the coming decades. Now, this study, it compared the traits of plants that are currently growing in the southeast to species that have existed there over the past 12,000 years. So they looked at things like the height of the plants, the surface area of their leaves, and the size of their seeds as well. And These are things that could show us how plants have adapted to different environments. And what the research team found was that up until around 6,000 years ago, plants in the southeast, they were really diverse and they were really productive. And it's drier and unstable conditions over the past 4,000 years that have triggered a change in some of the area's ecosystems. We're talking about areas that include World Heritage Rainforest as well. So plants in these areas, they tend towards being less productive. So they don't have as many strategies to reproduce and survive in the landscape. And this is a trend that they think will continue when there's more frequent droughts over the coming decades, which is what we're expecting So it does mean that some of the benefits that we get from areas like Western Tasmania's rainforests may decline faster compared to other parts of Australia. That's quite uh, amazing. One wouldn't think about Victoria and Tasmania with the beautiful landscapes in Tasmania, and yet they're the most endangered. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because we have that knowledge now of how those plants have already been adapting and changing over the last 4,000 years, that we can see that they're not really evolved to be able to cope with what the future may bring them. Yeah. And also scientists have found that uh, mammals island hopped from Australia to colonise the world. (laughs) That's right. So during the Cretaceous period, Australia, New Zealand, South America, Antarctica, Africa, Madagascar and the Indian subcontinent, they were all joined together in one big southern supercontinent that we know as Gondwana. And scientists from the Australian Museum, Museums Victoria, and also Monash University, they are now saying that the ancestors of mammals evolved, thrived, and diversified here on Gondwana for 50 million years before migrating to Asia, 126 million years ago. Now, this is a shock to the science community because for almost 200 years, Western science believed that the placental mammals and the marsupials, so, you know, echidnas and platypus, that the ancestors of these had originated in the Northern Hemisphere because that's where 
they find a lot of mammal diversity now. It's where the most fossils are found, the most different types of mammals. But this study, they did it on the teeth of mammals, and it shows that 126 million-year-old fossils from our continent share characteristics with fossils found in Madagascar, South America and India, which are up to 180 million years old, as well as Northern Hemisphere fossils, which it turns out are 50 million years younger. Researchers, they've called this an astonishing series of discoveries that have completely changed Western science's long-held theory of mammal evolution. It's flipped it completely. They thought all the mammals came from the North. Turns out now, all the mammals, they're coming from the South. So some great work by Australian scientists there. Yeah, so a discovery they came from here and not the other way around, which is exactly. uh, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> it is, it yeah, is. Yeah, great development. But there's one other, our next story is one that I may see uh, raising a lot of uh, concerns, ethical concerns, you know, mainly about uh, the discovery that, um, you know, the development that um, scientists are now able to use materials to make stem cells to behave like uh, human embryos. Uh, they're going to make uh, human beings out of test tubes? No, they're not. <laughs> I think it's, it's I think it's safe to say from the outset, and the researchers themselves have said, this isn't a way to grow people. What this is, is a way to replicate the early stages of cell reproduction and diversification. So this is from material scientists at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And what they've done is they've shown that human stem cells in a lab can start a process called gastrulation. This is where a simple sheet of cells transforms to make up all the tissues of the body. This is the time when those cells turn into the nerves and the cardiovascular and blood tissue and structural tissue, muscle, bone. But what's happening is they're doing it in the lab much earlier than it happens in the natural world. So for an embryo that is developing in the womb, this process of, of gastrulation, it happens at day 14. But in a dish in this lab at the University of New South Wales Kensington campus, it was, it was triggered within two days of culturing human stem cells. Now, you did say a little about ethical concerns there, and this is really valid because we haven't really been able to study the process of this in humans because you can't study this in the lab without taking developing embryonic tissue, so tissue that is already turning into an embryo. Embryonic research beyond that 14-day period is, un- is viewed as unethical, and it's also currently impossible to do it in vivo because you'd need to observe an embryo in a pregnant human mother. So we can't really do that either. So this discovery not only has implications for understanding of human embryonic development, but also new treatments in medicine, including cell therapy and targeted drug development and the CRISPR gene editing technologies as well. There was a secret that allowed them to do this, though, and this is, this is absolutely fascinating. What they did is the structure of the culture that the stem cells were seeded into. So normally what they do is they just put the stem cells into a petri dish, into glass or plastic, and that hasn't really resulted in anything like this happening before. 
that they used a technique that was adapted from the semiconductor industry, actually, where you've got defined little areas that were fabricated across this squishy hydrogel for the cells to stick to. So they worked out if you take those stem cells and you put them in that very soft and confined environment, it's kind of what the cells might experience in a mother's uterus. And that squishy material, it gives them just enough cues that they start that process all on their own. So this is absolutely fascinating research and it's really the first step in what the researchers are hoping is you know, a technology for producing useful tissue models. So we're talking about regenerating tissues and organs from a patient's own cells. So while we're not growing people, because that is unethical and it's not what's That's going to happen That's what I was scared of. That was. <laughs> <laughs> we might be able to grow some of our own organs if we need them in the future. So this could be absolutely life-changing for anyone requiring you know, a, a organ transplant in the future. Yeah, or curing cancers when uh, people have defective organs and they have to replace Absolutely. them and all that. So, yeah, it opens a wide range of possibilities, positive ones, not uh, the one I was thinking <laughs> about, scientists locking themselves in a lab and then creating some um, superhuman or sub-species. <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely not there yet. Absolutely not. <laughs> Thank God we're not there. And finally, one that's reassuring, actually, from one that was a little bit scary, one that's reassuring about climate change beliefs, it appears that they're not split, split along the political divide, which will create actually a lot of uh, relief in families and uh, people with different um, political beliefs. Yeah, and I think this is a surprising result for a lot of people as well. This was a study that came out of the Queensland University of Technology. So it was a Queensland-based uh, survey that they conducted and they found that 64% of climate change believing southeast Queensland people, they're, they're made up of people of both right and left wing persuasion. It's not just the left wing people that believe in climate change, which is what most people think. So this research paper that they've brought out, they've said there are still some significant numbers of people who do deny climate change reality. But they also found that the climate change deniers' views, they're not changing with exposure to climate risk events either. So even in areas where they are experiencing drought and, and flood and fire, it's not changing the minds of the people who deny climate change, it, which was an interesting result that came out. They found no significant gender differences in how we feel about climate change. But it did find that climate change believers do tend to be younger and highly educated people as well. So you know, these believers see government policy and action is highly inadequate for climate change mitigation and are quite vocal about it as well. And I think these are some really interesting insights because we do have a tendency to put people into two broad categories. You're either left wing and you're progressive and you believe in climate change or you're right wing and you're regressive and you don't believe in climate change and that's just not what's happening out there there is a divide though when it comes to rural and city dwelling people as to how we feel about climate change 
But the insights that they've gotten from this survey, yeah, it's going to help in overcoming the knowledge gaps between climate risk believers and deniers and hopefully give decision makers some you know, more information so that they can take adequate measures to address climate risks and develop appropriate land use decisions as well that really do respect the way that rural and regional people need to work with the land. Yeah, I hope we will reach a consensus because we are all in it together. And if we perish, well, we perish all together and we all contribute to climate change anyway. So we need to find a way that uh, suits everyone. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Now, Ray Johnston, thank you very much for bringing to us exciting discoveries in science and technology once again. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to chat.